Would you please turn in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 3? We're going to continue in our series that we've been going through in the book of Galatians. And today we are in Galatians chapter 3. And I'm going to read for us verses 10 through 14. And when you get to Galatians chapter 3, if you're able, would you please stand to your feet? We love to stand for the reading of God's word, which is a way of us just demonstrating that we honor God's word in this church. And so if you're able, if you'd stand, that'd be wonderful. I'll read the word of God together for us, and then we will have the word preached. Galatians 3, starting in verse 10. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith, rather the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. This is the word of God. Would you pray with me? Father God, thank you for the opportunity to gather together again this morning. To worship who you are to sing songs of praise, to encourage and love one another, and to hear your word. Father, we pray this morning that you would use this text to magnify the name of Christ, that it would be to his glory. We pray all this in his name. Amen. Please be seated. Muscat Control, Shell 8-1. We'd like to declare an emergency for smoke in the cockpit and request immediate descent. This was a radio call I made from the cockpit of a KC-135 refueling aircraft over the Persian Gulf on Christmas Day in 2010. It was my first deployment as an aircraft commander or the pilot in charge of the aircraft. At that time, I had several hundred hours of experience flying the KC-135, but this was my first true emergency in the air. And smoke in the cockpit is one of a pilot's worst fears. But we quickly put on our oxygen masks, we opened up our emergency checklist, and we were able to handle the situation. Our flight that day was cut short, but we made it back to the ground safely. In the world of aviation, checklists are everything. Jet aircraft are extremely complicated machines with many different systems. The flight manual for my aircraft was over 1,000 pages long, and I was expected to know all of it. And on top of that, I had to know how to fly the airplane, how to carry out our mission of aerial refueling, and all the flight regulations you have to follow while in the air. In all, there were literally thousands of pages that we had to learn and strictly follow to be safe in the air. 
And because of this overwhelming complexity, checklists were created, a list of steps to follow in order to make things easier. The checklist I would run before we even got off the ground included 120 steps, many of which I had to do in coordination with other crew members. That Christmas day in 2010 started out like any other. My crew and I grabbed some breakfast and headed out to the airplane for our mission. We followed our checklist and we safely took off with nearly 200,000 pounds of gas to offload to our fellow aviators in the sky. But what we didn't know is that a checklist step had been missed. Not by us, not that I've always been perfect, but a checklist step was missed by our maintenance team. Jet aircraft require an entire crew of maintainers who follow their own checklist to get the aircraft ready to fly. Well, that day, one step in the pre-flight checklist was not fully completed, and it resulted in some fluid in the airplane leaking onto electronic equipment about an hour into the flight. This caused smoke to fill our cockpit, although thankfully there was no fire. It also caused a little increase in my heart rate for about an hour there until we got back onto the ground. You see, a checklist is only good if every step is followed to completion. If you miss just one step, or even part of a step, it can lead to disaster. In the same way, the Apostle Paul is presenting the argument in Galatians, chapter 3, that unless you follow everything written in the book of the law, you stand condemned. Or as we've learned from the book of James, whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. And this is a crucial part of Paul's argument for justification by faith alone in Christ alone, which he's already laid out back in chapter 2 in verse 16. There he writes, Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Three times he says that justification before God does not come by works of the law, but by faith in Christ. And this is at the core of the gospel message. Now, last week we saw how Paul defended justification by faith from history. First, we looked at the believer's personal history. If they received the Spirit by faith, why did they now depend on the law? And secondly, we saw from the history of God's redemptive plan, beginning with Abraham, who believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. In today's section of Scripture, Paul is going to continue that defense of the gospel, this time from the scriptures of the Old Testament. In this short section, Paul quotes four Old Testament scriptures to bolster his argument that justification comes by faith alone in Christ alone. And so today's sermon is titled, Not a New Gospel. This gospel, the only true gospel, the gospel of faith alone in Christ alone, is not a new gospel. God's plan of salvation has always been by faith, 
and not by works. Abraham's story affirms this. And Abraham is just one of many Old Testament figures who lived by faith. We can look to the book of Hebrews in chapter 11, which is often called the Hall of Faith. And here the author of Hebrews recounts many Old Testament figures like Noah, Sarah, Joseph, Moses, David, Samuel, and many others who lived by faith. And we're looking forward to the promised Messiah. Justification by faith isn't just a New Testament idea. This is not a new gospel. So let's look closer at the text for today, starting with Galatians 3.10, and see how Paul begins his argument. Verse 10 reads, For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. So the first point that Paul lays out here is that living by the law leads to cursing. And by cursing, I mean that we are under a curse or accursed through living by the law. It is cursing rather than blessing that comes to those who live by the law. And so Paul is addressing here those who put their trust or confidence in the law to earn their righteousness before God, in addition to faith. And this is sometimes called or referred to as faith plus works equal salvation. And as Pastor Daniel has said in this sermon series, any addition to the gospel is indeed a fatal subtraction. And this was the claim of the Judaizers or the circumcision party that were mentioned in chapter 2. They taught that in order for a Christian to truly be right with God, he or she must conform to the Mosaic law in addition to faith. This included things like circumcision, uh, following certain dietary restrictions, and observing the holy days. They argued that Gentiles, the non-Jewish, had to become Jewish first and then they could come to Christ. If you were to ask one of these people, what are you relying on to commend yourself to God, they would point to their works of the law. And they would say, that's why God will accept me. I've been good. I've kept God's law. But there's a problem with this idea. Paul says that those who rely on works of the law are under a curse. And why is that? Because everyone who does not follow all the things written in the book of the law and do them are under a curse. Just as one missed checklist step in aviation can lead to disaster, not following the whole law will lead to cursing. And Paul shows that here from Deuteronomy chapter 27. So Deuteronomy 27, 26 reads, Cursed be anyone who does not confirm the words of this law by doing them. And all the people shall say, Amen. Now, this verse is at the very end of chapter 27. And I think Paul has in mind here the entire chapter. In this passage, God instructs Israel to divide into two groups once they've crossed over the Jordan River and have come into the Promised Land. One group is to stand on one mountain on one side of the valley, and they are to declare God's blessings if the people keep the law. The other group is to stand on the other side of the valley on a different mountain. 
Then the Levites, the priests of Israel, were to declare God's curses if the people disobeyed the law. And the final statement in the list of curses is the one that Paul quotes here. And I think the point is obvious. If we're going to find life by the law, then we're going to have to keep the whole law, every last bit, perfectly. And we all know, both from the Bible and from our own personal experience, that no one can perfectly obey God's law. We see this in the Old Testament in Psalm 53, where verses 1 through 3 say, The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt, doing abominable iniquity. There is none who does good. God looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand who seek after God. They have all fallen away. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. And the New Testament, in the book of 1 John, we read, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. So the Bible points to this reality. And I think we know this truth from personal experience. Each one of us can attest to personal sin in our lives. Just think for a moment about this past week. Is there even one day to which you can point that you went to bed without a single cause for regret? Not one unkind remark, not one good deed left undone. All your work done to the best of your ability, all your words both perfectly true and perfectly motivated by love. And all this not for your praise and glory, but for the praise and the glory of the one who made you. I know I didn't, and I'm sure you didn't either. We are all lawbreakers. So the point that Paul reminds us of here in verse 10 is that it is humanly impossible to perfectly obey God's law. And those who rely on following the law in addition to faith are ultimately under a curse because they do not wholly follow the law. And there is only one who has ever perfectly obeyed God's law, and that's Jesus Christ. The rest of us stand under a curse because of our failure to fully obey his law. Friends, isn't this a wonderful truth, that we're not saved by following a list of rules, but by faith? It isn't by following all the rules that we gain favor with God. But I have a question for you today. Do you demand complete obedience from those in your life in order to gain your favor? You may not say that outright, but is that how you act? Husbands and wives, do you have such high expectations for your spouse that they can never fully gain your favor? Parents, do you hold up an unattainable list of rules for your children to follow in order to get your love? I know for myself, I like order. I like rules. I've been in the military or military training since I was 14 years old. I have been trained to follow the rules to a T. No deviations, no exceptions, attention to detail. And I know that at times I can put an unachievable burden on my family by holding up the law of Justin that they have to follow in order to gain my love. I need to repent of that. How about you? Let's praise God that he doesn't work that way. That we aren't saved by rule following, but by grace through faith. Just as God has extended grace to us, we should extend grace to those around us. 
Back to the text here. What is the curse of the law? It is to be disapproved of by God, condemned by him, and subject to his judicial wrath. And firstly, it results in physical death. Breaking the law leads to our physical death. This began in Genesis chapter 3, when Adam and Eve first sinned in the garden. We see it clearly in God's words to them after they ate the forbidden fruit. Genesis chapter 3, verse 19. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. So the curse of the law brings physical death. We all, each one of us, will return to the dust unless Christ returns first. But the curse is more than that. The curse of the law also brings eternal death, or the second death. The curse of the law that Christ redeems us from is eternal death in hell. Jesus speaks of this at the end of Matthew 25, when he speaks of the final judgment. Here he says in verses 41 and 46, Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. The cursed are destined for eternal punishment. It's this curse of the law that Paul is referring to here in Galatians chapter 3. Those who rely on following the law in addition to faith are under the curse that leads to eternal fire. Apostles Church, we understand and accept the reality of hell. But do we live in light of that? Is there an urgency within us to share the gospel with the lost in this community? Do we warn people that it is appointed for man to die once and after that comes judgment? This staggering reality should propel us in our evangelism. The final judgment is coming. And relying on your own works, on the works of the law to be justified before God, only leads to condemnation. But there is good news. Let's continue with verses 11 and 12 from Galatians. Now, it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. So while living by the law leads to cursing, living by faith leads to justification. Living by faith leads to justification. What does it mean to be justified? Justified means to be counted or declared righteous before God. Justification is not an internal change within us. It does not make us righteous or holy before God. Rather, it is an external reality in which God no longer sees us as guilty, but rather as righteous. Think about it this way. Imagine last week you had gone and laid out on the beach on 4th of July weekend in defiance of the county public health order. Let's say you were brought up on charges and appeared in court before a judge. 
Now, it's clear that you broke the law and you are guilty of the crime. But imagine that instead of a guilty verdict, the judge declared you to have fully and completely obeyed every law. He declares you to be righteous. That's justification. It didn't change who you are or what you've done, but rather your sentence before the judge. If people were sinless and perfectly obeyed all of God's perfect moral standards, they could be justified or declared righteous on the basis of their own merits, on the basis of following the law. But that's impossible for anyone to do. Christ is the only one who can be justified by his obedience to the law. In contrast to the law, justification or the declaration of righteousness comes by faith. Verse 11 goes on to say, the righteous shall live by faith. Now, this is a quotation from the book of Habakkuk. In Habakkuk, this comes from chapter 2, verse 4, which reads, Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him. But the righteous shall live by his faith. This is the beginning of God's response to Habakkuk after his second complaint about the moral and spiritual deterioration in Judah uh, in the years leading up to Babylonian captivity. God's response here declares that a proud person relies on himself, whereas a righteous person relies on God. And in this context, we see that faith is continuing to trust in God and clinging to his promises even in the darkest of days. It is prideful for us to rely on our own works, to think that we can justify ourselves. Righteousness is only found in trusting God, placing our faith in him from start to finish throughout the Christian life. At no point do your works bring justification, not when you first became a Christian and not as you live the Christian life. Paul also quotes here from the book of Leviticus to show that the law is not of faith. And so in Leviticus 18, we read, You shall follow my rules and keep my statutes and walk in them. I am the Lord your God. You shall therefore keep my statutes and my rules. If a person does them, he shall live by them. I am the Lord. The book of Leviticus is a continuation of the first giving of the law, extending from the book of Exodus and Mount Sinai. And here in Leviticus 18, it starts a section on a call to holiness in various aspects of Jewish life. Paul is using this text here to argue that those who keep the law will gain eternal life. If a person does them, he shall live by them. But as we've already seen, Life will not come in this way since all violate the law. Law Law-keeping cannot lead to life because we are all lawbreakers. It is only through faith that we can be justified. And so the righteousness that is based on the law is not of the righteousness that is based on faith. And Leviticus demonstrates that. Let's look at verse 13 in chapter 3 of Galatians. It reads, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged 
on a tree. The faith that justifies is not an abstract faith. It is not just believing that God exists or some faith in faith. It is faith in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, in his life, in his death, and in his resurrection. And so it is that living in Christ leads to redemption. We see here that living in Christ leads to redemption. Christ is the one who redeemed us from the curse of the law, which is eternal punishment in hell. Now, to be redeemed is to use the language of purchase, or more specifically, of ransom. I think we're all familiar with ransom stories from the movies. Someone gets kidnapped, usually from a wealthy family. The kidnappers deliver a ransom note, and it has instructions like don't contact the police, and a detailed list to follow in order to pay the ransom. If the payment goes through, if it is the correct ransom payment, if it meets the demands of the ransom note, the kidnapped one is usually released then back to the family. In our text here, we are the kidnapped, in that we are all under the curse because of our disobedience, and we are destined for eternal punishment. The only sufficient ransom payment that can secure our release is that of Christ himself. And in order to do that, Christ became the curse for us. There could be no salvation without this. The price of the ransom was that he himself became a curse. He became so identified with the curse resting upon his people that the whole of it, in all its full intensity, became his. That curse he bore on the cross, and that curse he exhausted. That was the price paid for this redemption. Christ died in our place on the cross. The text goes on to say, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. This is the fourth and final Old Testament reference from this section. This comes from the book of Deuteronomy, this time from chapter 21, where verses 22 to 23 read, And if a man has committed a crime punishable by death, and he is put to death, and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day. For a hanged man is cursed by God. You shall not defile your land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. This is one of the requirements of the law that Moses gives. This law restricts the exposure of a dead criminal hanging on a tree. Hence, we see the concern to bury Jesus immediately after his death. But it's more than that. We see here that it is criminals who were hung on a cross, lawbreakers. And it says that a hanged man is cursed by God. For most capital offenses covered by Jewish law, stoning was the punishment of death. So it seems that to die by being hanged on a tree is for a particularly egregious sin. Some commentators believe that this form of punishment was reserved for treason and blasphemy against God. Now, Paul, as a Pharisee, he knew this historical context. 
He knew that Jesus hung accursed on the cross, but he provides us a new understanding. He knows that God has raised the accursed from the dead and thereby demonstrating that Jesus is the Messiah. This fact means that the curse Jesus carried on the cross was not his own, but ours. And by willingly taking the curse on our behalf, he redeems both Jews and Gentiles from the curse we bear for breaking the law. Has Christ redeemed you from the curse? Friends, we all, each one of us, start life under the curse. We are all lawbreakers and rightly condemned by a holy and just God. But the story doesn't end there. The gospel is the good news that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He became the curse for us and redeemed us from eternal punishment. Jesus calls us to repent of our sins and to believe in the gospel. And so I ask you today, have you put your faith in him? Or are you still trying to rely on your own works, on salvation your way? Relying on yourself will only lead to condemnation. Look to the cross where Christ bore the curse for us. Trust in him and your ransom will be paid. You will be redeemed. Let's look at the final portion of scripture, verse 14. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. So not only does living in Christ lead to redemption, but living in Christ leads to blessing. Now, blessing is the opposite of cursing, just as living by faith in Christ is the opposite of living by the law. Through faith in Christ, the blessing of Abraham comes to both Jew and Gentile. Abraham's blessing was not for his natural offspring only, but for all who would believe. And we saw this already earlier in chapter 3, where it says, Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. God called Abraham with the promise that through him all other nations would be blessed. In Jesus, these promises were fulfilled, as Jews and Gentiles alike were able to come to God through Christ, the promised offspring of Abraham. So it is through Jesus that the blessings of Abraham come to all the nations. We see here such a beautiful picture of God's plan of redemption. In the church, we have, at the same time, diversity in ethnicity and unity in Christ. God did not save only one people group, but rather his great plan involves saving people from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages. Christ died for the Jew, and Christ died for the Gentile. Christ died for the native-born, and Christ died for the immigrant. Christ died for dark-skinned people, and Christ died for light-skinned people. Christ died for people who look like you, and Christ died for people who don't look like you. God's church is wonderfully colorful, wonderfully different. And at the same time, we are unified in Christ. And Paul will go on to explain this even further later in chapter 3, where we read in verse 28 that there is neither Jew nor Greek, There is neither slave nor free, 
There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And there is one promised spirit, who we receive by faith. And we saw this earlier in chapter 3, when Paul posed the rhetorical question in verse 2. Did you receive the spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? The clear implication is that we receive the Spirit by hearing with faith, not by works of the law. The promised Spirit is a blessing of living in Christ by faith. The prophet Ezekiel foretold of the Spirit's coming in Ezekiel chapter 11, where we read, And I will give them one heart, and a new spirit I will put within them. I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh. God is the one doing the work here, not man. It is by faith, not by works, that the Spirit comes. Jesus also told of the coming Spirit, and we read this in John chapter 7, verses 38 to 39. Whoever believes in me, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Again here it says that the Spirit was given, not earned. For those who live in Christ, the Holy Spirit is a gift from God by grace through faith. And if we are led by the Spirit, we are no longer under the curse of the law. So you see, living in Christ leads to blessing. This passage of scripture today reminds us that the gospel of faith is not a new gospel. These four Old Testament scriptures point to the truth that justification comes from faith alone in Christ alone. Relying on the law to save you will only result in cursing because we are all lawbreakers. None of us have fully and wholeheartedly obeyed God's law. And so we stand under a curse condemned to eternal punishment. We can only be made right with God, declared righteous, justified by faith. And not just a general faith that God exists. For even the demons believe in God, and they shudder. But faith in the work of Jesus Christ, who paid our ransom, the only one who could pay our ransom, by becoming a curse for us and dying on a tree. And if indeed we have placed our faith and trust in him, if we are living in Christ, his Holy Spirit lives within us. What a wonderful Savior we have. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for your word today. Thank you for your gospel message of justification by faith alone in Christ alone. Thank you, Father, that while we were yet sinners, while we have all broken the law and stand condemned, that in sending your son, Jesus Christ, who lived a perfectly righteous life, he took upon himself our curse. He bore your judicial wrath on the cross and demonstrated by his resurrection that he was perfectly righteous 
and we now gain that righteousness if we would only repent of our sins and place our faith and trust in Christ alone. Help us, Father, to live in light of those truths and to turn in worship to who Christ is. We pray it in his name. Amen.